right. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to this episode of Tea with Taylor. I'm not drinking tea because it's the evening at this point, and I fear if I drink tea, I won't really be able to fall asleep, and I appreciate my sleep. So you can just admire this pretty cup I got for my sister's wedding, and I'll be drinking water. Let's get into it. episode I recently read the book The War on Alcohol Prohibition and the Rise of the American State by Lisa McGuire. I think that's how you call how you say her last name so I just wanted to go over the topics of the book as well as the key takeaways and really just provide historical context on the 18th amendment which is the prohibition um, which is prohibition or also known as the Volstead Act and how it became law, the motivations behind it, the movement and the consequences after it was instituted once, once the law and the amendment was ratified, as well as, like I said, my key takeaways and the lessons that I believe we should learn from this point in our history. And as I have said before, we tend not to learn the lessons that history provides us. So hopefully we can do that. And this book really brought real brought many things to realization or contextualize them for me so like i said this is the book i honestly just picked this one up i was at the bookstore and i just thought it looked interesting so i decided to read it and i thoroughly enjoyed it so first let's kind of discuss what the 18th amendment is so the 18th amendment which was ratified in 1919 it is the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation therefore, thereof into or the exportation thereof the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The Congress and several, several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. This article shall be in, inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of submission here of the United States by Congress. Like I said, this is the 18th Amendment that was ratified in 1919. It actually ended up being repealed in 1933 because 36 states signed off on it. Um, so first, let's go over a brief history of the 18th Amendment. Like I just said, it was passed in 1919 and it was repealed in 1933. Again, I put together an outline, so that's why you'll see me looking up and down for those of you watching on video. So the prohibition movement was largely pushed by the Protestant population at the time. Um, it really did intertwine the roles of government and the church and moral authority growing the scope of government and really blurring the lines between civil society and government authority, which we'll kind of break down furthermore throughout this episode. So the prohibition movement actually started decades before it became law in 1830s and 1840s is kind of when it started to gain traction because many in society realized that the consumption of alcohol has was rising exponentially and Many of them grew fearful. And the first actual statewide effort was launched in Maine in 1851. The mayor, Neil Dow, passed a law that banned drinking houses and tippling shops where alcohol, alcohol could be sold and consumed. And then the movement began to lose traction during the Civil War for obvious reasons, as well as reasons that may not be as obvious to some of you, and that being tax revenue. 
The alcohol tax was established in 1862 and provided guaranteed revenue to the government to pay for the war effort. And even though many of us agree for the reasoning behind the Civil War and believe that it was just, I don't know if many of you realize that to this day, the government is able to, for to afford and maintain these endless wars that we're involved in because of tax revenue and the Fed having pretty much unlimited power to print as much money as they want. So we fund actually these war efforts even though we might not directly intend to. So that is something that you guys may not be aware of, just something to think about. Uh, so I continue, in 1874, Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WTCU was established and became the most powerful reform organization in the 19th and 20th century, in the early 20th century. They were very involved in the prohibition movement and having it instituted and amended in the constitution. 1893, anti, the Anti-Saloon League was established. 1906, the Food and Drug Act was um, enacted and became law, and it outlawed, outlawed states from buying and selling foods, drinks, and drugs that have been mislabeled or tainted. And this began, they, the government began to control and patent medicines, pharmaceuticals, and impure foods during this time. On December 11th, 1913, an organization, the Great Joint Committee organized, or an organization, the Great, the Great Joint Committee, which was organized by General Aaron S. Daggett, a veteran of the Civil and Spanish-American War, as well as, the, like I said, the WCTU, came together to work and work together to put towards the 18th Amendment. In 1913, the federal income tax was ratified, providing a substitute for promised revenue that was at the time reliable for the tax on alcohol, as well as in 1913, the Federal Reserve was enacted too. And I'm going to be honest, the 20th century was, some good things happened obviously, but it was a time of expansion of government. That which we're obviously going to discuss in this, but from Woodrow Wilson, and then there was kind of a de-escalation in government under Harding and then Coolidge, and then it was ramped up again, obviously not including the prohibition because that was government overreach, which was during the Harding and Coolidge administration, but it was first put into law in 1919, which was still under Woodrow Wilson, and then carried over to the Hoover, in, uh, the Hoover administration and FDR, which just totally expanded the scope of government and it just never really stopped so it's just once i once you start learning about that it's like whoa a lot happened during those times um and then i continue 1914 a democratic senator from texas morris shepherd introduced the resolution that would become the 18th amendment he was actually referred to as the father of national prohibition 1914 harrison narcotics asked <laughs> the harrison narcotics act was established the first federal anti-drug legislation. The war on alcohol and the war on drugs happened simultaneously, though the war on alcohol got more attention and the war on drugs is actually still living out today in society. And I don't know if all of us understand it as much because it's not as, you know, alcohol was more of a prevalent thing in society, more of your everyday person did it. It was like very, Families did it, it was very communal, or even in some instances, it was 
kind of the culture where as far as drugs not everyone knows someone who's deeply invested in drugs but the war on drugs is still living out today and it's very prevalent um 1917 april 6th america entered world war one 1918 so that helped to kind of distract against it actually kind of helped promote further interest or support for prohibition because when we entered World War One, everyone kind of wanted us to focus on the war, on the on the war, and the citizenry to be ready to go into war and to be alert. So it was kind of an argument in favor of prohibition, and that was in 1917. Like I said, 1918, January 8th, Mississippi Mississippi was the first to ratify prohibition legislation. 1918, 28 states by this time banned alcohol. 36 states were needed to ratify or repeal the constitutional amendment. 1919, the 18th amendment was ratified and prohibition was instituted on the federal level, Nebraska being the 36th state. Then that was kind of, once that happened, obviously, like I said, leading up to it, it was state, the state kept growing with the federal reserve and the income tax being ratified. And then it just, after the 18th amendment, it just continued and exacerbated. And we're gonna go into detail into some of this. Like for instance, only not even a decade later, later in 1928, the Olmstead versus United States, it actually was a case where Olmstead and the defendants were convicted of a conspiracy of violating the Prohibition Act and they were wiretapped. And the evidence used to convict them was from that wiretapping and they, it obviously, in my opinion, was an infringement or a violation of their fourth and fifth amendment right. But because of the 18th amendment, they actually were convicted. And that, so it gave the government expanding power of surveillance over citizens. That's just the start, not even the start, because obviously this was the decade in, but that's a good example of how this law helped expand the scope of government and the privacy into your right to privacy from the government. The government doesn't need to know everything you're doing. It's not, it's, so like this stuff started really early. We're just seeing kind of the tail ends of it. Like, whoa, it's, the government's a little, getting a little crazy over here. So 1929, the Jones Act was passed, making Volstead Act a violation a felony. 1933, then finally, the prohibition was repealed. So that it took about, so it was, in, it, was, it was made law in 1919, and then it was repealed in 1933. So that's obviously, I can do mental math. It's 14 years. There you go. So it's less than two decades, but still a long period of time. And a lot happened during that time. Um, as I stated earlier, the, the push for prohibition was largely supported by religious Protestants due to their belief that alcohol was the cause of corrosion of the culture of family and the reason for crime in, in, in the cities or for what they would say was a nuisance or the sexualization. Likewise, many corporations actually backed prohibition at this time, like Rockefeller and Ford, because they thought that the negative impacts of alcohol had negative impacts on workers and their focus and their efforts. And before prohibition became law, there was conservatives like former President Taft and at the time Supreme Court Justice that wasn't in support of the 18th Amendment because he thought it was a, and I quote, direct blow to the state and local government. 
but once the amendment was ratified, he believed in enforcing the law. So it actually was started by many, like I said, the Democratic Senator of Texas was the one that formulated the 18th Amendment and then it was put into law under the Woodrow Wilson administration in 1919. And then as we'll see once I discussed it, it was actually ended up being some of the Democrats in, I think it was New York and Chicago primarily, that started fighting against it. And as we'll see, it actually played a very large role in the voting blocks and the misrepresentation known today as the switch, where many former Republican voters are now strongholds for Democrats. A lot of that started and was initiated after the Civil War and slavery was outlawed. And then it continued through the Civil Rights era because many people from from the Democrats and the or from the northern and the southern states started relocating and migrating to different parts of the country. Many from the north then went to the south and saw opportunity to help educate or develop underdeveloped areas, as well as prohibition played a large role in this because, like I was saying, there was the areas like Pittsburgh and Chicago and New York were Republican strongholds for a long time, for decades, obviously from the Civil War. And then they were very anti-prohibition. They felt that the prohibition in the 18th Amendment was a direct infringement, obviously, on liberties, which I would agree. But they thought that it was a direct and it, it caused the most harm to immigrant communities as well as blacks. So it ended up being like it ended up being a Democrat, Cermak, he was a leading opposition to prohibition. And he was, I believe, an immigrant from the Czechoslovakia, from Czechoslovakia or from, yeah, from Czech Republic. And he, I think, was located in New York. And so he was, like I said, speaking out of it, speaking out against prohibition publicly. And he was really starting to gather support from the immigrant and black, black Americans. And then that started to switch the voting block from Republican to Democrat, because even though the 18th Amendment was instituted under the Woodrow, the Woodrow Wilson administration in 1919, and it was introduced by a Democratic senator of Texas at the time, they were the first ones to start really speaking out against it and fighting for the repeal for the 18th Amendment. So whereas Texas and Mississippi were deep blue, they then turned Republican in the late 20th century, which was after the Civil War and after the Civil Rights Movement. And places like Pittsburgh, Chicago, and New York, which were once Republican strongholds, are now deep blue. So that was a big, prohibition was a big influence on the switch and the voting block from that point in time to today that we see in America's elections. And then ironically, but not surprising, the same people who opposed the 18th Amendment and the expanding authority of, that it gave the government to infringe on the people's rights, many wanted the government to end prohibition, but then they wanted them to control the liquor trade, as well as they continued their support for people like FDR, who was very much in favor expanding the scope of government. So which we see a lot of this today, that we, we have issues with the government or we have issues with things that happen when they expand their authority and they have more and more control over our lives. But then what is the solution we look to? Let's give them more power. Let's give them more control over our lives. How's that working for out? How's that working out for us, guys? 
But, um, and similarly, we see this, like I said, today, people complain and protest about issues and they believe it to be of the public interest and demand the government must do something about it. Creating this ever-ending cycle of problems being created by the government and then their involvement in the markets and their restrictions in industries providing a further, them further control and authority over our lives and then resulting in them exacerbating these problems that they created to then control more of our lives. And they manipulate our emotions on it because we see these problems, we don't know how to solve them, and then we think, I don't know, the government can? And if I, let me remind you guys, the government is made up of people. They can't solve your problems, all right? Um, and those in the government positions want, they don't want to solve your problems. They wanna wield those problems for political gain and they want to exploit those problems in your emotions so you're passionate about it and then they can obtain more money and more power. So just be cautious, be skeptical of giving the government more power and more authority because as we learn, once you give them more power and more authority over your lives, you rarely, if ever, get that freedom, that, that freedom back. So let's go over some, now that we have a brief history of the 18th Amendment, let's go over some consequences of the 18th Amendment. As many of you know, making something illegal doesn't rid it from society. And worse off, I mean, many times, the banning of a particular substance actually creates a lucrative black market. And whether that be alcohol or drugs, if it is, if there's a market for it, and there's people who want to buy it and there's people who will capitalize on that black market to then create an industry that's lucrative then it's gonna happen and this is where i'm conflicted i don't know which i'm going to speak about a little bit more at the end obviously it didn't work banning alcohol didn't work there were speakeasies it was a lucrative black market many people as we'll discuss went to prison for it the government was expanded by it I don't know where I fall on the war on drugs. I definitely don't think it should be criminalized. I don't know if it should all be legalized, but it definitely should be criminalized. I don't think people should be going to jail for doing a drug and ingesting it into their own bodies. There's not like they're forcing it into somebody else's. Um, so that's, I'm still conflicted on that. I'll, I, I got a little bit more thinking and research and education to do before I make up my mind on that situation. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of go over again some of the consequences. Further government regulations also simultaneously infringe on the rights and freedoms of the people. More legislative authority to the state, less freedom and privacy to the people, to you and I. Uh, for example, the prohibition led to the drastic expansion of the federal government in power and employment. The crackdown on liquor production and consumption led to many raids that were targeted to private homes, which violated the Fourth Amendment right, which is the Fourth Amendment right prohibiting unwarranted and unsearchable, an unreasonable search and seizure. Prison numbers drastically increased during this time. In 1920, the population of federal, um, the people in federal prison were 3,720. By 1933, they were 13,352. That's a 250% increase in less than two decades. And you would, you know, many of these people are nonviolent offenders minorities and black Americans. By 1930, Volstead Act violations continued 
or constituted the highest class of long-term violation in, in penitentiaries. And the Volstead Act violations made up one-fourth of all prison convictions. When Hoover took office in 1928, the FBI had fewer than 450 federal agents. By 1940, the FBI had doubled in size. The Prohibition Movement also created a culture of citizen warriors on behalf of the government, where citizens took it upon themselves to work alongside law enforcement to crack down on liquor industry, acting as the eyes and ears of the government and blurring the lines between civil society and the state. These groups, um, these groups consisted of Protestant ministers, women organization, and even the Klan. And politicians weaponized these citizen warriors and their allegiance to the state that caused further cooperation with the government. And they enhanced government authority because liquor usage created a crisis. And so much was take so much was at stake that it was necessary to become militant in its defense, and it was their duty to their country. Does that sound familiar? That the government needs a crisis to expand on their government and to exploit the emotions of the people. And without that crisis, the government is unable to exploit their fear of their citizens willing to and supportingly give up their freedoms and liberties to provide the government with further control. You're starting to see a pattern now because we now have today where we had government officials saying to tell on your neighbor to report them if they're not wearing a mask and to report them if they have too many family members in their homes and that it's a crisis on our hands. Give the power to the government, shut down your businesses. It's all repeating patterns of similar tactics, different reasons for the same result. More power to the government, less freedom to you and I. So lessons I believe to be learned from times in our history and things that you I under, kind of came to a realization while reading the book. As I was reading the book, I continuously was recognizing similarities and policies being pushed and implemented. Like the war on alcohol, the war on drugs has many similarities and the policies that were instituted to prohibit the usage, the drug, uh, the prohibit drug usage have actually just made the issue worse. And like I said earlier, I don't really know where I stand on this issue. I don't think that people should be criminalized for using a drug and injecting themselves with a drug or, you know, taking a drug. I do think it should be de decriminalized. Now I don't know where I stand on legalization. Um, I'm not sure, but the comparisons between prohibition to the war, the war on alcohol to the war on drugs as there's still a lucrative black market, even though these drugs are outlawed. We have more people dying than we did before. We have, I would argue that's what we should really be discussing is the amount of people that are, like the amount of overdoses we have and people dying from that. We have more nonviolent first time offenders in prison than we did before. The drugs are more dangerous and poisonous because, they're, um, because of their production and they're being laced with many substances. We have corruption between governments and cartels and drug dealers. We have expanding the government authority and the scope of government to crack down on the war on drugs. We have enriching the government and the incarceration industries. The wealthy have impunity over your average day American when they are found with drugs or in a situation where they're found with drugs and ultimately resulting in the corrosion of the nuclear family when you have so many people that are being imprisoned for maybe taking a drug 
and these corrosion of your families result to the corrosion of communities who are then taken advantage of and exploited by the government who create programs to help these individuals and families, making them reliant on the government. So it comes full circle. The government pushes for legislation and rules and laws against, in this, in this example, the drugs like they did with prohibition and alcohol to help your family and because they think that that's the way to do it and then what happens it actually corrodes because then those people end up getting imprisoned and taking away from their family and then they put government programs in place to help that family and then they become more dependent on the government and it just keeps going round and round and then we keep looking to the government to solve the problems and i actually believe there's a lot of common ground regarding the scope of government and authority specifically the federal government and the expanding their expansion of their power but in order to see that the left and the right have to come to the realization that just passing laws and putting forth all this legislation is not the way that when you pass laws and you create legislation it is the government and government officials who then have to enforce these laws so if we want less police interactions with civilians we need less laws on the books we need we don't need everything for the especially the federal government to control so i actually do believe there's a lot of common ground if we could just have a rational conversation an adult conversation on these topics and we as a society need to come to the realization that the government cannot solve our problems the government is made up of people they are not gods and they are not smarter than the citizens that they represent. So we must stop looking to the state and demanding that the more laws and regulations to be passed, the more laws and regulations that have to be enforced. And who enforces them? The government. And then who is the, who are the people that are convicting your fellow citizens? Now I'm not an anarchist. I don't think that everything should not be, you know, a I don't think the government should have any, I don't believe the government should not have any authority as far as laws, but let's be a little bit choosy as far as what laws are being passed. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of us can agree that the war on drugs has not helped the situation because many people are still on drugs. I still need to, like I said, figure out what I think on that topic, but I don't think criminalization is the answer. And in order for us to solve some of our problems then if we're not looking to the government is to take responsibility for ourselves and our communities and with doing that we must learn to accept that the actions and the lives and the way our neighbors and our fellow citizens live their lives even if we don't agree to it and when we don't agree to it as long as they're not harming us or our property let it be live and let live that's that's gotta be the new slogan live and let live unfortunately it doesn't raise money and really doesn't give the government more power so not all politicians are for it but try and figure out which ones are for and i'm kind of i'm a fan of those ones so as we know freedom is not easy society is not perfectible because humans are not perfectible you and i are not perfectible and we must take it upon ourselves to have responsibility for ourselves, our families, our societies, and for problems that we think are, should be addressed, to put the work in, to put the effort in, to look to each other to help solve problems, not the government. And history is filled with examples of the government trying to solve our problems or taking more authority. 
and it really just doing the exact opposite and taking away the freedom for us to do things and making people more dependent on government. And I don't think that's ever the answer. So I really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it. And that <laughs> the realization that the early 20th century was just the beginning of just the total expansion of government and federal government. And it just kind of has continued ever since because there's a, there's a good portion of our population that looks to these morons in government to control all of our lives and I'll never understand it and that's why I'm working to hopefully change the culture against that. I believe in personal responsibility, I live in freedom and liberty, I believe in educating yourself and that it's good to want to solve problems but maybe all problems aren't solvable and or at least completely solvable and maybe it's not more money and government intervention that will solve those problems Maybe it's more personal responsibility and education. And that's what I wanted to talk about in this episode. I hope you found it informative and I will see you again soon on Tea with Taylor. And I hope you guys have a great day and God bless.